Mark, hi, how are you doing? Richmond, hi, how's it going? Yeah, very well, very well. You're you're back in the room. It's it's awesome. I am. <laughs> I know. I love being in this room. This is one of my favorite rooms to be in. So thanks for the invite again. So you're um you're the first person to come back, actually. Is that right? Yeah, you're am the I first. the first? I'm I'm the first person to come on two times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're nice. You're winning. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But, Great. Um but no, that's great. So, so thanks for making the time because your, yeah. I've got to say, your your work is um, is hugely influential in 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 my work. Um, so you're you're there with me in the room quite often, um, and and this chat we'll have now, what you sort of explaining the concepts and, and going through, particularly the the new paper that's that's come out. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be really helpful because you're going to be able to point out perhaps where I'm going wrong with with some of my explanations um, and and ways that I'm working with people and and also where it's going right. So that yeah. kind of openness to to you know what's what's really happening. So um, I love that. I love that. Right. Okay. So like you just mentioned, we've got a new paper, um, and I'm really excited about this paper. Um, like particularly excited. You know, we publish a lot and we have lots of good research coming out in an ongoing basis, but this one is really special. Um, it's in a great journal, it's an emotion review, and uh, it's our first crack at looking sort of on the positive side of the scale, because as you know, a lot of our research for the past five years has been on pathology, on psychopathology, so using these new cognitive science frameworks, in particular predictive processing or active inference, and just as a quick note there for anybody who doesn't know those frameworks, although check them out if you're interested in our talk today, the idea is basically that um, the brain can be thought of, the brain and nervous system and maybe even wider body, depending on who you talk to, is a sort of anticipatory machine. So it's already it's always trying to work out how it's going to go next. And perception and action um, are going to flow. They're going to flow out of these sort of expectations for how things go. So rather than waiting around for signals um, and then making sense of them, uh, the whole system is sort of radically proactive, uh, making sense of the world by guessing what will happen next based on what it already knows. So we've taken that framework over the last five years, you know, we've applied it to addiction and depression and pain. You know, we're really interested in pain uh, as you are, um, OCD, depersonalization. Um, so it's been a bit of a heavy, it's been a bit of a heavy year, five years when it comes to research because we're looking at really heavy topics and uh, we've just turned the corner. So then this paper is called the predictive dynamics of happiness and well-being, where we're, um, looking at some of the lessons that we learned from the pathological um, literature and pathological research and starting to think about, well, uh, not only how can we go from being sick to better, uh, but what is it to go from better to well, mm. to happy and flourishing and well. So it's great, exciting. Yeah, yeah. so tell me, I mean, I'm interested in the switch because this, this resonates. Um, you, you may well have come across the work of Richard Davidson and the skills, the skills of being well, um, which he, he's sort of come up with four in his own research. But he was challenged by the Dalai Lama to, to do this kind of thing that you're doing here to go from studying. Well, what, what's going what's kind of going wrong to well, what yeah. could go right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which fits that. so well with yeah. with the kind of the the strengths based uh, or positive approach to to coaching or working with with people who are suffering to focus on what can go right and how you can how you can build on that. I love that, Richmond. And actually, let me just lay down the like the one of the main claims of the paper. And then I'd love to hear 
what you have to say about this and where you're seeing it in your practice as well, because I think it's going to fit like bric brac So the core idea is that that we found from doing all of this other research on psychopathology was we keep seeing one tendency over and over and over again. And that was for, for whatever reason, some sort of belief network uh, gets installed, a sort of suboptimal belief network, and then it gets insulated. It gets insulated from optimal updating. Okay. So you get some belief, you get some pathological belief that gets installed in the system and then it insulates itself from being updated. So now it's no longer changing relative to the new evidence. So uh, for instance, with depression, okay. So um, in our work on depression, we typify depression in part by if you have prolonged experiences of volatility. So if your environment is the kind of environment where you just can't get good predictive grips on how things are going. So it is uncertain. It's uncertain in a meaningful way. And that can be like, uh, you know, food uncertainty or uh, shelter uncertainty or uh, health, health instability uncertainty, you know, abuse and um, trauma. I mean, all those things generate uncertainties, right? Mm. If you have uncertainty over a long enough period of time, the predictive system can kind of do something a bit funny. It can start installing beliefs that the world is a kind of uncertain place, right? Now that's a problem for this kind of system because whatever beliefs it has, it uses those to make its predictions and its perceptions and its actions. So the things it believes, it sort of creates them in a way. So you get these really vicious feedback loops if you get a high enough belief installed. So just imagine a system that now believes, oh, the world is unmanageable. I can't manage the world. Issue there then is it turns the volume up on evidence that says the world is unmanageable and it turns the volume down on counter evidence. It's one of the ways it's trying to regain its grip um, based on this high level belief. And you, I hope you can see how that gets insulated because it's now not, you're not looking for counter evidence. So it feeds, it sort of feeds itself and, 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 and it does create a self-fulfilling cycle, right? Because you expect it to be bad. So you look for bad evidence and there's always going to be bad evidence. There's always going to be evidence that you're failing because you're always failing something. I mean, that's just part of being here as an intelligent life form. You're, you're always failing something. And then you turn the volume up on that and you say, oh yeah, no, I am. I am a huge failure. And then that, that enforces the belief, which enforces the look. And then you find it and then you prove it and sort of around and around you go. Um, and it's, it, that might not be pathological, just to be clear, that might not be pathological in a particular environment. For instance, soldiers who have PTSD in a, uh, you know, in the war environment, if they've got a great big amygdala that's tracking uncertainty in a, in a super high level way, that's really valuable in the war environment. It only becomes pathological when they come home in a way, and then that style of belief uh, doesn't get updated, and then the environment doesn't suit it anymore. Same thing with depression. If you have long-term depression, then even if you get into an environment where things start working better, um, those things are insulated in a way where they're not opening up. Okay, yeah. I don't mean to take up too much airspace here, but I just want to say, so the key line is, pathology is about installing suboptimal beliefs that somehow get insulated because of these nasty feedback cycles. And so what's going to be central um, to our long-term well-being are all those skills and abilities and ways that we have of locating those suboptimal belief packets and then challenging them in ways that they start updating again, that they, that they become updatable 
rather than um, embedding themselves and becoming stickier. Uh, we want to find ways of making them more fluid. That's sort of where I wanted to talk with you today, because mm. I think a lot of what you do is probably right there, challenging bad beliefs. And that's what we're seeing in the evidence as well. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And um, I, I often use the word kind of stickiness or, or stuckness. Yeah. I mean, stuckness yeah. is a word I may have made that up, but, it, but it's the word that I use and, and people can relate to that. And yeah. but, but but I always have to stick in a caveat because you know you know that I I um, am a someone who who uses Buddhist tenets in a in a practical way. So impermanence I think is something yeah. that's that's really important yeah. um, because although we're stuck and might be having uh, similar experiences over and over, whether it be pain or, or feelings of depression or, or something else, I don't think they can ever be the same. They have to fundamentally be different um, because it's because it's a different moment. And, and I think one of the important parts of that is it gives hope because yeah. it's yeah. not the same experience. Yeah, it's a different one. Um, yeah. And the thing that's the same is the story you're telling yourself, which is completely yeah. different from the raw experience. Yeah. But unfortunately, the story yeah. always wins out. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Okay. So number one, we can put on the table. One of the skills or abilities that help these kinds of packets be located and be dissolved is a high level belief that everything changes. That might be one of the reasons why that's so valuable for us. Um, because if you have a high level belief that everything changes, then uh, nothing, I mean, that's a great antidote for things getting frozen. Um, but then you actually have to build that high level belief. Sometimes, you know, it's probably not enough just to hear it, although that probably helps, you know, anybody at home who's suffering from any of these sort of sticky tendencies. I mean, even just hearing us say out loud, if you look closely at it, um, you're going to notice it's always changing. It's always moving. It's different from day to day. Um, really, the only thing that's stuck is our belief in a way, right? Um, it, but of course, beliefs run deep. So they're really experientially experienced. You know, but we need more than just to hear that, don't we? I mean, we actually have to go and look, which is, I guess, what the whole meditative program really is all about, which is training people over a period of time to persistently look at how their experience is until they really deeply install a high level belief that everything is fluid. And so this too, this too truly will pass. No wonder that's a kind of magic spell. You know, this too will pass. This too will pass. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, when I think about some people with who are experiencing pain, who are very, yeah, they have, a, to use your words, a very high level belief that their pain is caused by the tissue, whatever that happens to be, the, the disc right. in the back or the ligament or the joint or the fracture or whatever. Um, and they're really, really firmly stuck on that that belief. There's no other explanation that, that makes any any kind of sense to them and and i suppose to again to use your analogy they that's really kind of being cornered off as yeah there's there's a really strong vault around that belief um and and working out with that person how how somehow we can open the door to it to to some other possibility and i guess part of them will that part of them will cling on to that belief because they don't have anything else yeah yeah. I mean, that just it just seems obvious without proper scrutiny that pain is about damage. I mean, it feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, you go 
I'm, I'd stub my toe and it hurts because I've hurt the toe. Um, but that's not exactly, that's not exactly the case, is it? And so how do you, how do you as a professional, how do you, I mean, how do you uh, jeopardize that belief? How do you get somebody to see that in a new way, that sort of packet of, oh, damage is what pain is. So if I'm in pain, there's damage and start updating that. What do you do as a professional there? Well, it, it depends on on the person and their narrative. Right. I try and pick stuff out of the narrative. So as you can imagine, the beginnings of that relationship, that collaboration is is a lot of listening um, and, and helping them feel heard. And, and I think that, that that opens some kind of door. Um, and, and, you know, using things like a motivational interviewing style or, or approach or, or way of being. I mean, actually, with the pain coaching, I, I describe that as a way of being with, with people in the room, um, which I think sets a scene where they feel safer. Uh, and I think that that, you know, might undo the vault slightly. Um, and then you can just pick out little things. So, I mean, here's, here's an, it's not the same with the tissue damage um, example, but it's just a really good example of how someone has a particular sticky belief and then how we can unpick it. So someone came in the other day and said, I had a terrible day yesterday. It was awful, awful. I went to bed and it was, it was, you know, I was in a real state. It was a terrible, terrible day. And I said, oh, that, that's, tell, you know, tell me more, tell me about it. And, and the person said, um, so, well, the morning was really good, actually. Um, I did this, that and the other. I was like, OK. And then the afternoon was pretty good. And I did this thing and that went really well. And I said, OK, great. Um, and then evening when I got home, I felt terrible. I felt really bad when I went to bed. It was awful, awful, awful. So I just I mean, I can't remember my exact words, but it was, you know, along the lines of. So so that's a bad day for you. And he, and he kind of paused and was like, well, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, well, the morning was no, the morning was pretty. You can see where it goes. So, wow. so wow. I think that if, you know, if you're not careful as a, as a clinician, but not even as a clinician, just as a friend or a partner or whatever, listening to someone else who's saying, I've had a really bad day. Yeah. You could just say, oh, that's terrible. You had a really, really bad day. Have a, have a glass of wine or do this or do that. Yeah. You know, trying to fix the problem. That, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That never yeah. works. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and then both of you then have this belief that they've had a terrible day. Whereas if you yeah. just have that conversation about realization with the nuances, the, all the different things that have happened during the day, they themselves start telling you about a better day than they thought they'd had. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mindfulness and metacognition are indispensable for well-being for exactly that reason, right? Because what you're trying to do is locate the belief networks and figure out which belief networks are real and which ones are useful. And that's probably better useful and which ones are unuseful. And if they're not useful, start jeopardizing them by looking really close at them. I mean, that seems to be a, a theme of what we're saying right now. I love that. So just even opening the space to say, well, let's look closely at the data because one of the ways these things can get isolated is you start to overlook the data. Now you just have a belief set that you're acting from, but you haven't properly looked at it yet. So just, um, just, to, just to sort of back up your, your anecdote there, they did an experiment where they took people with major depression disorder, so deep people who really struggle with depression in a deep and sort of profound way, and they asked them, how often are you depressed? And more or less across the board, they say, I'm depressed when I wake up, 
I'm depressed all day. I'm depressed when I go to bed. So I'm depressed all the time. Like, what, what, what are you asking me? You know, I'm, I'm here because I struggle with depression. So I'm, I'm depressed all the time. So then they gave them beepers and a journal, and then they randomly beeped them over a number of months and got them to write down what mood they were in, what they were doing, how they felt, just at the time that the beeper went off. And um, what they ended up finding was that sort of 80 or 90% of the time, they were either in neutral or positive states and that the depression state was actually quite a small pie slice of their day, except for it had blown itself up in their minds and partitioned itself off from being updated. So they kept telling the same story. So they kept having the same sort of negative attitude towards their own experience without actually critically looking at what that experience was. And, And just think about how powerful that can be just to say, well, let's look at your experience. So no wonder you as a pain coach, starting with, let's just feel safe here together. And then let's start opening a little bit to what our experience is actually like, because it might not be the way you expect it to be. It might not be the way that you're experiencing it if you look a little close. So, I mean, again, um, the different meditative skills and abilities seem really um, pertinent there, aren't they? The, these sort of close introspection abilities. Definitely. That, that self-awareness, call it right. that as well. Self-awareness. You know, it's, I think it's a, it's a key skill that's, that's never taught in schools. Another one of the many key skills of life that, that you know, we, we kind of develop because suddenly we have to. It's suddenly something that's, that's really important. Um, I, I'm not very good at quoting studies and dates and times and all that, that sort of thing. But um, I, I know that, that um, Daniel Kahneman did an interesting study to do with the, the sort of the endings of things and, and what we remember. And, and the key point from that was really that, that, you know, whatever we're doing, you want to have a good ending because we'll remember that, whether it be a meal or a gig or an appointment or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and we'll tend to remember the, you know, the ups and the downs, the peaks. So, you know, if, if you've had a, having a, a, you know, a difficult meeting with someone, you know, you should always try and end on a high because then they'll perceive it to be better than it perhaps was overall, or, or certainly better. I'll have to dig that study out and put it in the show notes. Please send me a link too. Because I think particularly for therapists and, and, and when you're working with people in these, these highly emotive states, you know, these people are in real trouble in life. They're really struggling and suffering. Um, you know, you, you often need that time together um, to work on stuff, to work through stuff. To, to help them to understand and to see things and have insights that, that you're having, keep shining that light on their strengths. Yeah. Um, and, and for that to happen, they, they need to feel that something good is happening. And, and if they always leave in tears, then, you know, that's, that's not going to last too long, I don't think, which is understandable. I love that we're having this conversation, you know. Um, I think it's widely pertinent today to be thinking about um, the sort of mechanisms of how bad beliefs get installed and then how they get insulated and then how they defend themselves and then thinking uh, counterposed to that. How do we, how do we break them down? How do we jeopardize them? How do we get them fluid again? Because it may, of course, like pain is a great example from your research, but like, let's just look at the world stage today. Also, all of the bad belief making systems that are awake today where we're getting uh, misinformation, in various ways, and then it's getting installed, and then it's resisting updating, and then look at the kind of 
um, cultural, social pathologies that are arising because we're not very good at tracking reality because actually, well, for lots of reasons, but partially because we have systems that are that are actually working against us having a good grip on the world. Um, so I've been thinking a little bit recently about the power of intellectual humility. And I think it plays, it plays a role here as well. And what I mean by that is um, where you have installed, like in the language of predictive processing, which is the cognitive framework I'm interested in, if you have installed a high level belief that the things you believe are probably only relatively true and they're definitely up to be updated, right? So intellectual humility means you don't really ever believe that the way you think the world is, is definitely the way the world is. Yeah. And, and um, that's a kind of hot topic today in virtue research, thinking about well, what's the value of humility? And what's the value of intellectual humility? And um, I'm particularly interested in, um, I haven't done this research yet, but it's something I'd love to be doing. Have you ever heard of a super forecaster? Have you heard this, have you heard this term before? I have heard the term, but yeah, yeah no, okay. talk, talk more. Right, so there are people in the world who are really good at forecasting. So they can take noisy data sets, so uncertain data sets, and then they're able to predict with pretty high fidelity how that data set will emerge over time, even though, it's pretty noisy to start with. So these are the kinds of people who can guess who's gonna win a presidential election or guess this or that in the market. And um, it's actually turned into a kind of sport where people compete all over the world. Um, you, you go to a competition, they give you a noisy data set, you make your best prediction and uh, you can be a good or bad forecaster. And it turns out that this just isn't an inborn um, uh, ability but rather you can train it like any sport, you can right. learn to be a good predictor. You can become a good forecaster and maybe even a kind of super forecaster, okay? And I love, I love these people uh, research-wise because the view I have of the nervous system is that it's a, predictive, it's a predictive system. So I think it's kind of cool to look at humans who are good at predicting. Mm. Now, this might be a bit poetic. You know, this isn't, this isn't hard science here. So, I think there's a nice metaphor here, which is if you kind of look at people who are good predictors, I think there might be some, I think there might be some interesting stuff that we can gain about what it is to just be a good life form that's built around trying to predict well. Now that might not go one-to-one -one as easily as I'm making it sound, but I think there's lots of, I think there's some interesting, uh, I think there's some interesting things to learn from super predictors about what it just is to be a good predictor. Like, I mean, that's what we would hope we are to have well-being according to our recent work is for us to be good predictors. So I'm kind of interested in these super predictors to see what they do. And um, they do a couple of things across the board. So if you take the best of these super forecasters and you look at uh, what kind of people they are and the way that they see the world, and then uh, you look for commonalities, you see two big things all the time. One, uh, they're extremely curious people. Um, they're interested in a lot of different fields. They're not getting, they're not getting uh, pigeonholed in one topic. They're the kind of people who are interested in lots of, lots of things. So they're not getting stuck in their own little field, their own little bubble, their own little filter bubble, their own little echo chamber. Mm -hmm. They're interested in looking in lots of places for data. So they're kind of interested in science and they're interested in literature and they read poetry and they read comic books and they talk to these people and those people. So that seems to be one thing that helps you be a good predictor is you're interested in lots of things. But the other thing is intellectual humility. They tend to be the kind of people that when you speak to them and you tell them something that goes against one of their beliefs, they don't buckle down and say, hey, that's wrong because I feel like you're jeopardizing 
a core feature in me. So then I kind of hate you for saying such a thing. And now, now there's a real tension between us. They tend alternately to be those kinds of people, which I think are just better people to speak with, in my opinion, where they go, whoa, whoa, is that right? Like, where did you hear that? Where did you, where did you get that evidence? Wow, it's so interesting. I would have thought it was like this, but you're telling me there's good counter evidence. Maybe it's like that. Oh, it's so interesting. I'm going to go check it out. And I'm totally willing to update my model if you're pointing me to better evidence. Um, I tell this story sometimes about Andy Clark, you know, Andy, my, um, my yeah. supervisor for 10 years. Um, he's such a great guy. And I mean, he's a huge, he's a huge deal in cognitive science, you know, but when you talk to him about the things that he's working on, he's so humble about them. You know, you say like, well, do you think that this is true? And he'll be like, true. You know, all I know is that this is the next logical step. And if it turns out to be wrong, and it'll probably turn out to be wrong in 50 years, 60 years, 100 years as our science get better, who cares? That's, our job isn't to get it right. Our job is to progress the science bit by bit in the logical way and let it, let it evolve. What, um, yeah, I hope you can see why that would protect you from getting these locked in nasty feedback beliefs that we think underlie pathology. Yeah, yeah, loads of stuff sort of came off, you know, as I'm yeah. listening to you there and how, you know, that that healthy person, that well person would would typically be able to draw, be, be happy to draw on all that. And yeah. if you think of the, the stress that it causes that person, if they're unable to update a belief, That's huge. Uh, they're so rigid in, huge. in how they think. It just means that they are they got so many sharp edges that they're, they're hitting the world with rather than being able to roll. And I think that curiosity is such a powerful state to be in because it's always, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Does that come up in your work? I bet curiosity, curiosity about your phenomenological experiences about your pain must be one of the valuable things if you're coaching people in pain. Yeah, I mean, it, it can, you, you've got to work towards that position. Um, I mean, some people are there when they come in, they're, they're curious about their own experiences. But of course, most people, when they first start, they just want their pain to get better. They want sure. to ease their pain. They want their suffering to, to ease. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's complex. There's a lot of stuff that, that has to be, that has to be covered, um, you know, around understanding, you know, that the pain and suffering is part of life. And, and we need to take that on board because I think we are told that pain's a bad thing. You know, certain emotions are bad emotions or you should be happy all the time, which is really com completely unrealistic. It's not how life is. But I think the messages in our culture are, are really unhelpful with that. You know, there's a whole thing around getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is probably why, you know, endurance sports are becoming increasingly popular because... Yeah. Okay, there's yeah. people who are in very difficult situations in life, and, and particularly at the moment, there's terrible things going on, horrific things. But a lot of people live very comfortably. Um, they don't have to move much. They don't have to do that much to, you know, they turn the heating up or, or turn the TV over or, you know, food is easy, accessible. Um, and, and so anything that, that sort of pushes into the discomfort is, is an immediate problem, an immediate stressor. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's not just around the in terms of how the if we're talking about the sort of the body in relation to movement, it's 
you know, I have great concerns about how the younger generation is, is dealing with life. I know there's a lot of pluses and there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm, but, but the way that life is seen through the digital lens, and I know you've done some, some stuff on social media, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on that and how that's yeah. shaping the views yeah. and the ways that the youth are, are seeing the world and each other. Yeah, it's a great point. And actually, it flows right from our paper as well. So one of the things that we think helps protect us from getting stuck in these suboptimal cul-de-sacs, belief cul-de-sacs, is to be sensitive to and be willing to hang out at the edge of our own comfortability. Those systems that are comfortable, uh, you know, not all of the time, of course, we have a window of tolerance, so we want to respect our window of tolerance. But those systems that are, are interested and curious in the edge of their own capabilities end up being the kinds of things that are willing to break up their own sort of dusty, rusty, old belief sets in order to digest and transform by these kinds of uh, novel experiences that happen at the edge of their abilities and their skills and their know-how. And I mean, like, you know, we have lots of evidence that um, animals and humans, and now we're even building robots like this, are attracted to this edge, this edge of criticality or this edge of chaos, this edge of confusion, because there's lots to learn there. You know, there's lots to learn right at that edge. So I'm working with a couple of really great people. You know, this paper was written with Julian Kiverstein and Eric mm. Reitfeld, but I'm working with Julian and Mark Anderson, Mark Anderson is at the um, Aarhus University um, on play and playfulness. And we're thinking about risky play in particular, the values of risky play, the values of having a bunch of uncertainty thrown at you, um, mm. which is pretty cool, you know? So we've been doing some research on like how horror movies can be healthy. Um, and one of the reasons why is because it pushes you, it pushes you out of your comfort zone. And there's all sorts of good stuff you can learn just outside of your comfort zone. Um, so if hanging out at the edge of your abilities is one of the things that can protect you or can be protective against getting stuck with any one sort of belief set for too long, especially the sort of nasty little ones, the question is why don't we hang out at our edge? And um, you know, there's a couple of reasons I think why we don't hang out at our edge. One on the inside, if we are too if we have a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty in our life, the tendency is to back up into our well-established habit belief networks rather than try to explore. So if you take a cat to a new environment, they do exactly, I think, what our brains do in, in uncertain environments. They just hide. They hide, they lock down, um, you know, and they refuse to be updated. They go back to what they know. And it's only when they start being safe do they start... Uh, exploring to their edge. So I would say one thing we need to think about if we want people to be exploring this edge and, the, and there's lots of healthy things that happen at this edge, including preventing us from getting stuck in bad beliefs, then we need to make people feel safe. I don't know what that looks like at a cultural and social level, but people need to be made to feel safer than they are right now mm -hmm. so that they're willing to start being curious again. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I'm really interested in is just like you say, how technology is now being designed to a little bit push us um, away from uh, learning rates in a yeah. way and helping us, I'm sort of instantiating bad beliefs, like, like for instance, that the whole world is doing great except for you, you know, so you have all this staging and filtering and 
photo manipulation, which gives you this huge sense of FOMO, which is really just engendering fear and uncertainty. So no wonder we lock down again, rather than being flexible, being willing to explore this edge. Yeah, so the, the, the teen in the, in the bedroom kind of seeing all this stuff going on via their device, all this stuff out in the real world that probably isn't happening as they're seeing it, but it's just making them feel terrible and therefore they stay in the room more. Right, so there you go. Too. So there's, there's one of those nasty feedback loops, right? Now you're getting, you're getting something right in your hand that's constantly telling you you're doing worse than expected. You're doing worse than expected. Yeah. The world is too uncertain. Look, look, look at your friends. They're all happy, beautiful, with partners, great jobs, fast cars, you know, and you've got none of that. You've got none of that. I love these. I love now that like one of the things that I do like about <laughs> sort of in response to this, where we're all having camera phones recently is because you get these really funny videos where people record people recording themselves where those people don't know they're being recorded and then you can actually see what the scene looks like, right? Yeah, so you yeah. can see a couple fighting. You can tell they don't like each other at all. It looks like the worst possible coffee date in the world. And then they stop for a second to take a selfie. And then for that moment, they look like they're totally in love. They're kissing each other. They're both smiling. And then the second the camera is down, they're basically like turned <laughs> away from one another again. And, yeah, uh, That's reality, you know, that's reality. Yeah. Yeah, but that's it, isn't it? And I think it's almost like those those two points are tied up because, you know, this this sense of safety. How, how could you get a deep sense of safety when when there's a whole world out there that, that puts value on on, you know, grades, looks the size of your house or, or whatever? Um, all that focus on the prize, but nothing on the process. And. You know, the prize, whatever that is, is only manifest because of the process. So you if you're not focusing on the process, you know, nothing's going to happen anyway. So this was the it's it's so interesting that you take it this direction, because the last chapter of the paper um, starts looking a little bit at the kinds of activities that we're doing that might be supportive or non-supportive of this increased fluidity. What kinds of things are we doing that are that are encouraging these lockdown sticky bad beliefs to happen. And the one that we picked to look a little bit at, although it's just sort of scratching the surface, is zero sum activities and non zero sum activities. So if you are primarily aiming at zero sum activities, meaning, so zero sum activity is where if I win, you lose. There's a limited edition, a limited edition, I get it, you can't have it. That's a zero sum activity. Okay, so there's a limited number of Ferraris of a certain model. Then if your whole life is about attaining that Ferrari, that's a zero sum game. You have to get it. And that means other people have to not get yeah. it. Okay. Problem with those is, is that, well, first of all, one, they, they have a definitive ending. So um, for a system, so one of the proposals we have is that a healthy system is going to be one that keeps transforming and growing at this edge. Okay, so ideally we would wanna be primarily engaged in activities that are continuously opening rather than continuously closing. So a zero sum activity is one that inherently is gonna close, it has an endpoint. So for instance, it's one of the reasons why we might have midlife crises, right? Because the American, the American dream is a zero sum game. Get a house, get a house, get the, get the hottest partner from high school, um, get a great car, get all the, get all the uh, accoutrements to the house, 
You know, those are all zero. Those are all zero sum activities. They're a limited, finite resource. Mm. And so when you get them all, what happens? Then you got them all and you look around and you go, well, I'm no happier. You know, uh, I've now I've got them. Now what? And you don't know what to do else because you've just spent 40 years making yourself the kind of thing that gets some stuff. And yeah. now you got it. And now you don't know what to do with yourself. So then you just start doing other weird stuff and you have no basis for what to do next in your life. So a non-zero sum activity in contrast is uh, one of those goals that we have where it doesn't matter how much I get, you can still get an endless amount. These are, li- these are limitless qualities. And it just turns out that a lot of our virtuous pursuits are those kinds of things, being patient, being compassionate, being a good neighbor, being a good partner, uh, being, a, being a serviceable human. You know, these things are limitless. Yeah. Right. You can't, you can't ever get to the end of the, of the patience project or the curiosity project. Imagine if one of your big life goals was to learn what it's like to be alive. What if that was your primary goal? I want to know really what it's like to be me. I mean, that's why I got into philosophy originally. You know, I wanted to know what is it like to be me? What is it, what is it like to be anybody? And what does it mean to be like somebody? Like those are primary aims of mine. I mean, I don't care so much about career. I care mostly about figuring out who I am and what life is like. And that having that belief installed, having that goal installed deep in my system is highly protective against these kinds of suboptimal routines. Because no matter what happens in my life, it's interpreted as another opportunity to learn what it's like to be me. And that's going to include illness, old age, injury, death, death in death around me. These sorts of things can be digested because they fall in line with this non-zero sum goal, which is to learn what it's like to be alive, which includes the good and the bad. Yeah. Which is, which, I mean, you're, you're as monk-like as you can be without being a monk. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, a, I'm like a city monk in a way. <laughs> Sometimes I do think that. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. With with a with a bit of, with a bit of hair, but um, <laughs> but I suppose in a way then you know I, I, when when I'm talking to people about you know the skills of being well and and daily daily pillars that they can use that are the things that are important to them to 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 build and sustain wellness, you know I often say to them there's no end point to that, like cleaning your teeth you don't you don't just stop I've done it now you you just keep doing it there's there's no there's no end to that and and it is it's all the important stuff there's no there's no end to looking after your loved ones and 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 looking after your relationships and and you know your career i use that in the loose sense of whatever you you spend your time doing there's there's no end to those to those things um well, that doesn't have to be. I mean, of course, you if you have a certain belief. But I suppose what I'm interested there is that, you know, you, you've got this, this huge, unbounded curiosity um, about yourself and, and the world in which you're appearing. But where did that come from? Yeah, very good question. Uh, actually, the answer is I was fortunate enough to have my midlife crisis super early. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was uh, I was a manager of a of a marketing firm in my early twenties, um, which super high position. I think I was the youngest manager in Canada, and I was making a 
boatload of money. So I was, I was getting all the check marks for the thing that as a young man, I thought I wanted, which was have a nice car, have a big office, have lots of people working for me, have lots of access, have a nice apartment. Um, all the things were, all the things were working right. And I was completely miserable. I hated it. I hated it. I felt completely divorced from myself. Um, I was increasingly dispassionate. Um, you know, you are in an industry that encourages dishonesty and encourages shark-like mentality and encourages like a really super strong zero-sum attitude. I mean, like where they really encourage that, where they think, oh, it's cool that you are the only one who gets that and kind of who cares about anybody else. Yeah. And I have had natural, like even from very early on, I was naturally really empathic and really compassionate and really kind. So this is cutting exactly across my natural tendencies and I'm being applauded by, you know, everybody saying, wow, wow, you're such a big success. And it was brutal, it was absolutely brutal. And it made me sick. It made me so sick that I sort of feared for my life. Um, wow. And when I got better, I made a strong determination to do something completely other. So I got out of the company and I went traveling and I started meditating. And then I got enrolled in university and I started studying philosophy and I've never really gone I've never really gone back. So, you know, I say, I feel like I've been saying this a lot recently on other podcasts I've been on and with people that I'm speaking with is I'm really trying to be an advocate today in academia of um, giving up this sort of shark mentality, the zero sum activity mentality that we also see in academia, you know, like I want first name publishing rights. If I'm going to help you, what are you going to give me? I'd better be a named author and I better be close to the front or else I'm not helping you. And no, I'm not going to share with you my research because it's my research and there's only a limited amount of research to do. And I need this one if I'm going to get the grant and I'm going to get the job and mm. all of the rest. It can, that can feel really real. It can feel really real in my industry. Um, but I, I'm, I am making a sort of strong determination to do exactly the opposite, a kind of dolphin mentality rather than a shark mentality, I say, yeah. which is you give your time freely, give your time freely, don't worry about credit, help other people succeed who are around you. Um, and the result has been, I'm kicking ass in, in my field. Um, you know, we have eight publications this year. I mean, that's way more than a philosopher tends to have in a year. And the reason is, is because I give my time away freely because I care more about being a good colleague. I care more about helping other people feel successful and feel uh, established and feel safe. And I care more about doing really interesting research rather than trying to make it my research. And the result is I'm just kind of a cool guy to hang out with. It's nice to work with me. Um, I'm always helping other people. And so I keep getting invited on to project after project after project after project where um, it's very reasonable amount of work that I need to do for for big rewards, you know, super high payouts. Um, it doesn't feel like that would be the case because it feels like we need to keep all those things for ourselves. But really, the opposite is true. So I feel really blessed that mm -hmm. early on I had this transformative experience, which was trying to get everything for myself makes me sick and then try to maybe you can try to live in a different way. And it just turns out that by living in that way, um, my career has worked just fine, um, yeah. you know, which is yeah. cool. It's cool. It's that very that cool. Turns out like that. It's very cool. And, and it really resonates because, um, you know, that that's very much, you know, the approach of 
I've been very lucky to get to know, and he's been enormously helpful, uh, Mike, Mike Pegg, who I often refer to when I talk. Um, and um, he, he's known as the positive encourager. This, this podcast was, was named, you know, kind of after him and, and with him in mind. And, and when, I, when I went to Mike, when I set it up, I said, oh, you know, there's this, I'm trying to think of a name and, and positive encourager or the encourager keeps coming up. But I said, that's, that's your term. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, no, 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 that that term belongs to the universe. You, you, you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. You know, it, and yeah. it's that it's it's the yeah. in in yeah. the giving, in the giving, yeah. the more you give, yeah. the more you share, the, the more it comes back because you're not after anything. And look and look, you're plugging his name now. You mention him all the time. You know, like you and I hang out all the time. We give freely to one another. And then I see you supporting me all the time on social media and I'm supporting you on social media. I'm like, it, how could that be a bad thing? How could we have thought that it's all about getting more for me? I think it's once you, once you convert, it seems totally insane that you would try to do this any other way. I don't know how you would ever do it on your own, isolated from other social dynamics. And that's one of the big things that comes up in our paper as well zero-sum mentality poisons your social networks mm -hmm. because you end up engendering those characteristics that make you um, anti-social. They're anti-social tendencies because it is about me rather than about us. Yeah. And um, whether you want to or not, that's eroding, that's eroding your potential for collaboration. And research today is collaborative by nature, I think. I mean, this is the time for us to be talking to each other and getting involved with each other's projects. And um, I think that starts with a change, a change of mind. Yeah, uh, I yeah. mean, I, I completely agree. You know, collaboration, or, or even as Mike says, you know, togetherness over over tribalism. Um, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a time for it, a football match, that kind of thing. But yeah, but that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Sort of tongue in that's kind of tongue in cheek and, and a yeah. bit of fun for a while, and then you yeah. should come together afterwards and, and set but again, up. even even that's just local, right? That's not a global mentality. It's a local mentality. Of course, you can locally compete as long as you globally care about everybody having a good time and the sport being honored and people having exercise and and having a good time competing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Indeed. I think this this the the competitiveness, which I guess is what we're talking about here. The you know I've got to win at all at all costs and I've got to clamber over everyone and those sort of sales marketing positions they you know they feed on that and and company a company will set the agenda around that because they want everyone clambering over each other I don't know if you've seen the um uh the the the, the series dope sick about the um the sacklers and the opioid and oxy content and all, all that stuff i mean that that was exactly what they were doing i mean that's really dem is demonstrated in the um and i mean the empire of pain yeah that book by uh patrick patrick keith i mean it's it's an amazing documentation of that whole episode um but but obviously not just unique to that you know the sales environment where it's you know you, you've got to get one over and and there's all the stuff going on behind backs and so there's no trust it's all threat 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 everyone's surrounded by threat um, and then, then of course, that becomes your way, and and you even are in competition with your loved ones, you know, in competition with your your, your kids. You know, you, the, there's the the sort of the joke of the competitive dad. There's a, there's a funny yeah. series that used to be yeah. on called The Fast Show, and they they had one one sketch called Competitive Dad, 
and it's it's hilarious you know it's funny but it but it but it's funny because it happens so there's one episode where you know there's these small kids doing the school play and the dad's in the audience shouting rubbish boo get off (laughs) and then another one where they're playing cricket in the park and and um they're bowling at the dad and he's smashing it all over the place and then running and he's (laughs) He's scoring like hundred. He's like on a hundred and three, hundred and four, <laughs> smash, and then. And the thing is, we laugh because it's actually what happens. Yeah, brutal. I think Karl Marx actually said this, didn't he? He said uh, that 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 mentality was going to ruin love because you can't go to work and be a shark twelve hours a day and then come home and be a dolphin with your family. You can't come home and then suddenly be a giver and a supporter because you are the thing you do. The thing yeah. that you do all day long ends up being the kind of thing that you are. Just to bring it back, because we're nearing the sort of end of our time here, um, just this idea about insulated bad beliefs being what drives pathology and about jeopardizing those beliefs and putting, making them fluid again and allowing them to be updated again as being a hallmark of well-being over time. Just this point that you just said, I just think fits so well within that narrative as well. One, if you're constantly under threat because you're part of this zero-sum mentality, Again, just like we said earlier in the talk today, if you're afraid, what do you do? You back up. Mm. You back up into those well, well-worn well grooves and habits because they're the ones that tend to work when the world doesn't make any sense. So we back up into our racistness and our biases and our tribal things because they were old and they work when, they're, when you're under incredible pressure on the savannah. They're garbage today. You know, they're mm. ruining our world today. But we still have an evolutionary style where we back up if we feel like we're under attack. So again, there, look, that mentality of how you live your life, if it engenders threat everywhere, then you will tend to be the kind of thing that backs up into, potentially backs up into bad beliefs. And there again is maybe one of those dynamics that keeps us in these insulated, bad ways of experiencing the world. Yeah. Other thing is, is that it cuts you off from the world it makes you literally isolated. We see this in the academic world, you know, like if you have a non, if you have a zero sum view of your academic work, then you work alone. You don't share, you don't, you're not allowing other people to come and help you update your belief sets because to do that, you would have to display your beliefs and you don't want to do that because they're mine. These are my beliefs. They're going to be in my book. So you're never displaying your beliefs, which I think is so powerful to display your beliefs and have other people update them. So no wonder if you're in that kind of mentality, you literally, you literally, uh, you, you insulate yourself from the world, which is exactly the thing that we think is causing the problem. There again, the solution is to open the gates again, get some air and some fresh sunlight into these belief sets and let other people in the world poke at them and push them and lift them up and put them down so that you're updating them so that they're becoming malleable again. So I just, I just love that this tail part of the conversation again, like zero sum belief style engenders fear and it cuts you off from your social networks. Those are exactly the kinds of things that we would think might engender this kind of insulation and that kind of insulation might underlie various forms of pathology. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, one of the things that I talk to about people is is the disconnection with with three P's and a B um, and the work we do on reconnecting with three P's and a B. They're not the only things to reconnect with. Um, I don't know. Can you can you guess what they are? Three P's and a B? No, I have no idea, but I want to know. <laughs> the first, I mean, in no particular order, you won't be surprised by any of these, but purpose, 
So that, you know, the things that you care about, um, yeah. people, yeah. and we know that the quality of our relationships has a massive impact on our, our, our sense of well-being. Um, the planet, or you could call it nature, so getting out there, in, but yeah. particularly getting out there and forest bathing and, and all the rest of it. Um, and the B is your body, because, of course, you know, if you're in pain, the body feels like it's the source of your suffering. So we we try and get away from it. But I don't think that you can you can heal. And I use that in its broadest sense and and, and overcome something like pain and, and live a meaningful life again until you're whole. So in other words, being with your body and accepting it for what it is. And and I mean, it might sound a bit to use your term woo, but but, you know, loving it again. And, and that's hard. I know this stuff is really hard. And some people yeah. listening who are in pain might be yeah. going, oh, yeah. you know, what's he on about? Um, but, but, you know, and these are the types of things we need to help people understand and, and, and explain why we think they're important and how it's going to help them. There's got to be value, you know, coming for your, your, your ex-marketing um, career. There would have been some good stuff in there, by the way, like realizing that, that you know, we're working with human behavior and, and people have needs and they, they need to hear certain things um, in order to be open to the possibilities rather than the problems. Yeah, and there again, you see uh, you, your pain can turn out to be a very insulated, small, well, a huge phenomena that's just sort of isolated here. So I really can understand uh, why it would be valuable to get back in touch with your body, with your purpose, with the wider world. Again, that just sounds like reintegrating, reintegrating with a bigger system in the hopes of getting this thing to contextualize, to move, to be understood relative to a wider set. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, completely. And, and it's really turning the model on its head because traditionally with pain and, and with other, other conditions, of course, all the focus of treatment is on the, the bit that hurts. And somehow the person is waiting for, for the pain to go before they live life. And I say, well, you can do that, but you'll be waiting your whole life. Why don't you turn it on its head and start living life to, to overcome your pain? So let's think about the things that you want to do and you want to reconnect with and work out how you can start doing that bit by bit. And it's going to be pretty small to start with in some cases. And so therefore you're, you're curating and creating these little experiments for them to succeed with by working within that window of tolerance big tick, acknowledge the win, keep a journal of successes, create your own evidence that you're, you're getting better, sometimes even doing better than expected, which feels, well, hey, um, yeah. and building on that and, and also learning how to deal with the inevitable ups and downs because there's nothing linear about this at all. It's all, you know, topsy-turvy, up, down, and all the rest of it. Um, and let's, let's equip you with those skills so that you, you can deal with it, albeit it's still, you know, still hard, it's unpleasant, it's challenging, it's difficult, it's emotional, it's all of those things. It's really damn hard, but you can. You can with the right kind of knowledge and guidance and insight and, and encouragement. And that's what we this, can do. This, is, this was such a good conversation. Um, thanks for bringing a real professional lens to our theoretical work. I just love these conversations with you where we can take some things out of the armchair and out of the lab and really think about them in sort of comprehensive real world terms. It's so valuable to me and I hope it's valuable to you too. So, you know, we've got, um, we've got a new podcast starting um, called the Contemplative Science Podcast, which is aiming at looking at the science of contemplative skills and states and abilities like mindfulness and meditation 
and the science. I think it's just so cool that, uh, I mean, I didn't mean for this to happen today while we were talking. It just seems to be one of the things that you and I tend to talk about, which is thinking about what mental skills and abilities that we can train are the ones that are going to lead to a better life than using our scientific lens to consider the the applicability of those things. So it would just be great to get you on our podcast. So we mm-hmm. should continue this conversation. You should come over on my podcast now yeah. and we'll and we'll keep going because I'd love to I'd love to interview you on these topics that we're talking yeah. about today as well. Oh definitely, definitely. I mean this is an ongoing conversation and and equally, you know, I think we were saying at the start, you know, your your work is having a huge influence on on how I think and then sort of seek to distill it into practical things to do and and for probably seven eight nine years now I've I've been going and this is where we met of course at these smaller meetings where I'm yeah. usually the only clinician in the room and people like yeah. but I but it's wonderful because I've got to know some amazing scientists and philosophers and thinkers who I'm now in contact with regularly having these yeah. dialogues and yeah, you're a real and they bridger. know that I'm sticking around they know that, that I'm there because I want to learn and, and then we can all pass that on to to people to make a difference yeah. in their lives so we're all doing it together it's the exact thing yeah. we're talking about love it love it so there we go there we go nice one nice one nice so um now your your podcast I'll, I'll put the link to it on the on the show notes that'd be great um, thank you where else can people find you? We're on the episodes are being dropped on Spotify. Um, my, I keep everything updated on my website, which is markdmiller.live. Um, so there's a news page right on the front um, that has uh, has all of the sort of different things I'm doing. And I keep all of my talks updated and podcasts I'm on there as well. And uh, I think that's probably it. But I'll give you, I'll drop you some links and then they, they can go in the in the show notes. Awesome. That's great. And I would definitely encourage listeners to go and have a look. It's all on there. All your talks and you, know, you can listen to those, listen to them. They're, they're great as well. So um, fantastic. All right. Great. Well, Thanks, Richmond. And I look forward to number three. So yeah. uh, let's, let's do that. Not before too long. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Until next time. Take care. Okay.